Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to the Revive Podcast. We're excited you're here. This podcast will include our Sunday morning Sunday school class, our worship night teachings, and an occasional fun interviews. I'm excited to share with you this week's episode. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's it. In other words, everything we're about to read was, were the things that led to the word of the Lord increasing. Everything that we're reading is what led to this movement of God to occur. Let me put it this way. An incredible act of God, a movement of God, happened in the city of Ephesus. And the verses that we're about to read is the how that it happened. Why is that important? Well, because I think all of us want to see a movement of God in our city. We want to see a movement of God in our campus. We want to see a movement of God in our own heart. We want to see a movement of God in our friends. And we often just go, well, how does that happen? What does that look like? Well, this passage actually gives us a very specific account of what it looked like in Ephesus. Now, you're going to find out very shortly that this is not going to look like what it's going to look like for Nacogdoches. It's going to look a little different. But rather that there are things that transfer from this um, transformation that Ephesus had when it came to a movement of God that transfer over to the things in Nacogdoches. Does that make sense? So let's start in verse 8 and then go from there. So here we are, verse 8. Paul is in Ephesus. We're going to read 8 through 10. And he, being Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, so Paul is in Ephesus, and as his custom, like what does Paul do when he shows up to a city? He goes to the synagogue and he begins to reason and teach with them, right? That's like a normal day in the life of Paul. So he goes to the place of Ephesus, and if you remember Ephesus, Ephesus is a home of one of the seven wonders of the world, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It's the temple of Artemis. Artemis was a, a Greek goddess and the goddess of fertility and the goddess of nurture and care for young children. And so when you think about Artemis, a modern-day depiction of that is Wonder Woman in the DC universe, right? So that's who she's based off of. So Artemis, the entire town worshipped Artemis. And to not worship Artemis meant that you hated Ephesus. If you lived in Ephesus and didn't worship Artemis, you were like anti-Ephesus, like totally, totally, totally anti-the-city. And so when, when Paul shows up and begins to preach the gospel, and people come to know the Lord in Ephesus, can you imagine there being a little bit of an uproar? That now, not only have they turned from idolatry, and people aren't cool with that, but now they've turned their back on the city. In the way, because the entire economic system of Ephesus was built around the worship of Artemis. And so, I mean, just the people who were making statues actually revolted and said, we can't make any more money because people aren't worshiping Artemis anymore. Like, this is the, the hostile environment that Paul is in. Paul shows up. What does he do? He goes to the synagogue, and he reasons with them for three months. Okay, why is that important? Well, there's um, an ancient document that actually talks about what, what Paul would do. Um, and he would show up during their midday uh, break. 
So he would show up essentially during their siesta. So they would work at the beginning part of the day, they would take a siesta, then they work for the afternoon part of the day. And from about 11 to 2 or 3 in the afternoon, Paul would preach every single day. He'd go into the synagogue and he'd preach every single day. I want you to just imagine that. Paul takes four hours, four hours out of his day for three years. He says that he continued, I'm sorry, for two years. He continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word. That's what it says in verse 10. So for three hours of a day, probably six days a week, because they rested on the Sabbath, and for two years. Can you imagine that culture? Like that culture of that church was founded based upon biblical teaching, founded based upon understanding the scripture and understanding the Holy Spirit's life, and it moved from there. So one of the first things that we want to say, things that accompany a movement of God, is dedication to the teaching of God's word. We see if you want to see a movement of God on your campus, you want to see a movement of God uh, in, in the spheres of influence around you, then there has to be some sort of dedication in your life and in theirs and, and the teaching and the listening uh, of the word of God. I mean, that's what, how Paul starts off. He, he gathered everybody around and taught his heart out. Uh, there's actually a really cool story a chapter later. I think it's hilarious, and so I'm going to tell it now, that Paul was preaching late one night, and they didn't have electricity back then like Edison hadn't lived yet. And so everything is candlelit. And so it says that they're upstairs and they've got like 600 candles and a bunch of people packed into this room and have, they're having like this late night Bible session. All right. Can y'all imagine it in your head? A bunch of people packed in this room. Well, this like dude who's like 15 uh, is sitting on the window. Well, apparently Paul was preaching. And by preaching, I mean, he was going on forever. Y'all ever been in a sermon where the pastor just keeps going? All right. That was Paul. So he's preaching, 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 preaching. This guy falls asleep. All right then falls and dies because he fell out of the window. Okay, you know, it's, it's a true story. It's going to get funny in a second. So, yeah, maybe a dark humor, I don't know. Uh, but then Paul stops preaching, comes down, heals the man. He's now back to life. Then he goes back upstairs, and what's he do? He could have taken it as a sign and said, hey, man, you preached long enough. Let's go home. He says, now anyways, like I was saying, back in verse 3, and he begins to preach more. So, like, Paul has this custom of studying the Word, which is really interesting because I think a lot of us want to experience spiritual growth in our life, but we want to try to do it absent the Word of God in our life. We want to experience growth in our life. We want to experience change in our life, but we think we're going to do that absent the Word of God being in our life. And not just in our life on a Sunday morning or at your CG in your small group, but in your life on a regular basis, like just you and God. And so if you want to see a movement of God, there's some sort of dedication to the teaching of God's word. I, I think that's incredible. What was Paul doing, though? Was he not preparing that church? You know, Paul would come for a little bit. He was a church planner. He'd come for a little bit. He'd plant the church. He'd start the church. And then he'd what? He'd leave. Because there was another place he had to go tell about Jesus, right? That's what he did. Well, but he spent all this time teaching the church of Ephesus. What was he doing? makes me think about in the letter of Ephesians, which was written to the church at Ephesus, all right, Paul says that he was equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Y'all ever heard that phrase? Equipping the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, Paul understood that he, being the pastor of that church, was going to leave and go to another place and tell more people about Jesus. And, but the work of ministry in that town 
where there was full of idolatry for Artemis, the work of the ministry of that town was for the church, the laysmen, and that he had to equip them for the work of ministry, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. He says that in the book of, of uh, Ephesians. So those three or four hour Bible study sessions, what's he doing? He's teaching them how to be ministers in their town. What would that look like just in your own mind if you said, okay, ministering and caring for this town isn't the job of the pastor and isn't the job of the church staff, but rather is the job of me and my friends. Caring for the campus of SFA isn't up to Gary and the BSM or whoever. Like, it's up to me to go and care for the campus of SFA. Like, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. The saints are the ones who do the work of ministry. The, the church is the ones who do the work of ministry. But our, the American model, though, says the pastors and the church staff are the ones who do the work of ministry. Y'all see how that's opposite to what Paul preached here? And I can get on a soapbox today. I'm trying not to. But, like, we're all a part of the work of ministry. So that's the first thing that he does. Let's go to verse 11. Okay. Now, this is where it gets a little strange. It's going to get strange here, and then it's going to get stranger. So we're just going to read 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Uh, we should all just say, hold up one second. Because there's a couple different things in there that should have made you go, huh? Uh, first of all, the fact that he had to say extraordinary miracles. You know, like miracles are normal. Like, but he was saying there was miracles, and then there was like whatever was happening. Like this is, this is not something you see on a regular basis, which is probably why I made the Bible, because it was something so crazy. And so what's happening is like literally um, towels that Paul had that he would like wipe the sweat off his face. People would grab these towels and, and that they would believe in Jesus when they touched the towel and they'd be healed from their disease. All right, that should be A, gross, and B, you should go, that, okay, run that by me again, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. What are we actually saying? Are we saying that Paul had magical abilities here? Well, we already have talked about that Paul was a normal guy. Paul was someone who was raised in, in the Jewish customs. He was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he would later say, a persecutor of the Jews. Actually, he was kind of a bad guy. Not kind of. He was a bad guy. God saves him. He meets God, and God's spirit lives within him. So now he's a, a normal guy who, who's ordinary, who now has the spirit of God with him. And now this is happening? You know, it kind of reminds me of a couple other things. Do y'all remember the woman who touched Jesus' garment? Like he was, he was walking, and then she reached out and touched him, and she was healed. And Jesus turns around and say, he goes, powers. <laughs> I love this, the disciples. He, he's walking, and there's a big old crowd. And all of a sudden, Jesus goes, who touched me? And Peter's like, what do you mean who touched me? There's 400 of us here. We all touched you. Like, like we're walking. It's like walking down New York City. Like, what do you mean who touched me? And he said, no, there was power that went out from me. That's what he says. Because the woman's faith, like the garment didn't heal the woman, but her faith did. Or it reminds me of that time that Peter in the book of Acts would walk, and those who would literally be brought into Peter's shadow would be healed. 
What are these things, the, the garment, the, the rag, the shadow, like what are those? Like what are these mystical things? Well, honestly, God did something in a very mysterious, extraordinary way. I mean, the text says that. It says that this miracle was extraordinary. God shows up and does this thing that we can't really comprehend or understand. But what is he doing? He's giving opportunities for belief. He's giving opportunities for people to express their faith. Uh, I mean, it's like when Gideon, when, in the Old Testament, when he put out the fleece and said, okay, God, if it's wet, like, then I'll go and do what you've asked me to do. Like, if I wake up tomorrow and, and this towel is wet, like, come on, some of y'all done this before. Like, Lord, if I open this door and it's unlocked, I'm going to follow you. Right? Like, y'all have done things like that. I remember I did, a, I did a thing like that one time when I was trying to figure out if I needed to buy a house. I was like, all right, Lord, if I go and it's unlocked, I'm in. Like, just like asking the Lord for a sign. Y'all ever ask, ask the Lord for a sign before? So this is kind of what's happening. You're asking for the extraordinary. Like, God, you don't have to do it. If you show up and you, like, if this doesn't happen, it doesn't mean you're not good. But you're asking out for the extraordinary. Okay, so what do we do with that? Well, he's presenting open doors for someone to believe that Jesus would heal them. Um, it's interesting that God does not require this throughout the rest of Scripture. You know, the rest of the book of Acts doesn't say, hey, if you want to get saved, you know, you, you got to go, you got to go find the apron that Paul wore. Like, that's not what it says. This is just a one-time only opportunity for them to express their faith. But what doesn't change here? Because I don't want you to get confused by this. What doesn't change is this is an opportunity for faith. What are the opportunities that God places in front of us all the time for faith? Opportunities for faith for the people who do not believe in him. And you might see it, these unusual miracles, or you might hear a story. Sometimes this happens when missionaries come back and they share stories of these unusual miracles, and you go, oh, how did that happen? And then you might become a skeptic and say, well, that didn't happen. They're, they're lying. Rather than saying, what if God did an unusual miracle? What you're looking for, though, is not did the miracle happen or not happen. You're saying, was there life transformation after the supernatural? The goal was never just to have supernatural experiences. The, the goal is that there's life transformation because we meet Jesus. And here's, this is what happens with these people. They, they experience life transformation. And I wanted you all to see this in a little bit of a greater text. So um, look at verses 13. All right, I said it was weird, and we're going to get a little weirder. All right. Um, if this is your first time here on Sunday, we don't always talk about person's sweat rags like healing people. Like this is, this is not normal. But this is an unusual text. So let's look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I jure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them. It's always getting interesting. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Okay, we gotta break this down real quick. So there were these dudes. Um, there were seven sons of this Jewish priest named Sceva. And what had happened is that 
they had seen incredible things happen. You know, we just talked about un, like unusual miracles that happened. And they said, okay, like, I want to be a part of that. That sounds cool. That sounds like something that can bring fame. That sounds like there's some sort of higher power I want to go get. So they weren't after relationship with Jesus. They're after this cool mystical power. And so they, they watched Paul do it. And they said, well, every time they do it, they mention this guy named Jesus. Like, okay, so this must be like the incantation, like the thing you say, like the magical words to bring out demons. And so they show up, seven sons of Sceva. They go to this guy who's demon-possessed, and they say, uh, in the name of Jesus that Paul talks about, come out. And what happens? This demon goes, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I know who Jesus is. Interesting that he says that. The demons know who Jesus is, and they know the power of Jesus. And he says, and, and, I, and I know Paul because he follows Jesus, and he has a relationship with Jesus, and Jesus lives within him in the Holy Spirit. But I don't, but who are you? You're acting like somebody, and you have no power. Isn't it interesting that when people not full of the Spirit try to fight demons, that the demons win? Isn't that an interesting thought? But, but for those who are demon-possessed, and God can heal them with someone who's full of the Spirit just by that person's shadow? Like, the power levels is not even close. We sometimes think of spiritual warfare as like demonic forces as being pretty powerful, like almost, almost, almost as powerful as God. Like that's completely false. Completely false. The demons are subject to the power of God. So these seven sons of Sceva, they come up and say, in the, in the name, of, name of Jesus that, uh, that Paul talks about, get out of here. And it makes me think about that one time that Jesus was with his disciples and he was with the crowd. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, which when you, when you hear Jesus say truly, truly, he's about to get real. So he says, but not as real as truly, truly, truly. He says it three times. Mm. But so he says it twice. He says, I say to you that there are going to be those of you who die that when, you, when we meet in judgment, I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. He'll say, but God, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. And it reminds me of the person who, who knows God based upon their friend's relationship with God. Because what, what did the seven sons of Sceva say? They say, in the name of Jesus, who Paul talks about. In other words, in the name of Paul's Jesus. And how many of us have heard, just think about that, like my grandma's faith, okay. It's really my grandma's faith, but I'm counting it as my own. It's really my best friend's faith, but I'm counting it as my own. Like, how many people do we know that do that? Like, they don't know God. They're convinced they do, but there's no relationship with God in their life. And they're really banking on someone else's encounters with God. There's no encounter with God on the individual level. You see, if the seven sons of Sceva had the Holy Spirit within them, they wouldn't have ran out naked and wounded. They would have walked out in awe of the power of God. Do y'all see the difference there? And so the seven sons of Sceva remind us of that time that Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. It's very interesting. I want to I look at something. Look at verse 17. 
So this incident with seven sons of Sceva just happened, so things have gotten really real. And in verse 17 it says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And check this out. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Okay, another way of saying that was they found out about what had happened, how someone had claimed to know God and and claimed to do it just like it was a magical art that you could say the right things, like it was a spell. And they found out that that didn't work, and rather they got conquered, essentially. But rather than people being afraid of demonic forces, it actually says that the people began to worship God because they say, oh, man, there's something about actually knowing God. You can't just claim, claim God in the words, but there's a knowing of God in our life. There's a, there's a knowing of God. I, I want to say that, you know, sometimes it is dangerous to take the reality of spiritual warfare lightly. And, and, and if you're going to hang out around Fredonia Hill for the next year, we're going to spend a little more time talking about spiritual warfare. And there are two ways to look at it. We're not going to get into it too much. But people, sometimes people will believe that everything in the entire world ever is spiritual warfare. And then there's the opposite side that says nothing is spiritual warfare. But what if there's a world where we can live in that's not one of those extremes? And so if I were just to say one thing, there's, there's a couple things at play. There's your flesh. There's the spirit of God within you. And then there's demonic forces. How do the, all those work together? Well, we ought to live by the Spirit, we ought to deny our flesh, and we ought to rely upon the power of God over the demonic forces. If we were to just make that very simple, live by the Spirit, deny our flesh, and live empowered by the power of God over demonic forces. So we see the demonic forces are real. Okay. But what happens next? You see, one of the reasons why everyone began to worship God because they realized you couldn't just say a magical spell was that the culture of Ephesus was, was built around magic as well. Magicians were a normal part of Ephesus. So if you're a magician and you just heard that magical spells aren't powerful, but knowing Jesus is, how do you respond in that moment? A magician who maybe had attended one of Paul's long sermons one of his daily long sermons. I don't know how he did that for like three years in a row. But so what do you do? Okay, let's look at verse next, uh, 18. Okay. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. Check this out. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Translation, one to five million dollars. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay. So now these guys show up. And it says that they were those who had recently believed. What does verse 18 says? Many of those who were now believers. They weren't believers, but now they are. Y'all see that? So now they're, now they're believing, and they've come, and they've brought their books of magic. All right. This is a very, very, very mystical kind of, kind of lesson today. But I want you all to see something very crucial. Their way of living, when they encountered God, they realized was powerless. They said, okay. And now that they know the Lord, 
they've taken what they used to do, they've looked at it, they've counted the cost, they've examined it, and they said, what am I going to do with this thing that's worthless? Well, they had two options. Option one, they could have sold it. They could have sold the book. Why could they have sold it? Well, because everything they burned was about one to five million dollars. Okay? If you had something to be like, hey man, you could burn that or you could sell it for 300 grand. I want you to think about how you're going to make that decision. But rather than choosing income, what they did is they said, this thing is so dark and it's misleading. I don't want it to be in the wrong hands. I've seen the power that it's had in my life and I would like to burn it. So they all gather around and they burn it. In other words, they renounced the things of old so that they might worship Jesus. They renounced the things that they were accustomed to so they might worship Jesus, even though they could have got profit from it. Okay, so where does this story interact with us? You might say, John, listen, I got a lot of friends. And outside of that one time I went and saw Doctor Strange, there's no magical spells happening in my friend group. And, and that's not something we're dealing with. And I definitely don't got any book that's worth 300 grand. Like, although some of y'all think your textbooks cost that. But, so, you go, like, man, it's really cool that God did something cool, but how does this play out? All right, well, let's go back to that movement of God thing. What are the, there are four things that we see for this movement of God. Okay, the first one was that there was dedication to the teaching of God's word. Paul was teaching. He was helping them be equipped for the work of ministry. Y'all remember that? Okay, point number two is that there was these unusual miracles. God was doing something in their midst. Then there was this reality of spiritual battles. The sons of Sceva thought they could come in and, and just proclaim the name of Jesus. But magical art is being shown to be false. But then there was also this other thing, and you might call it radical discipleship, and discipleship being learning to follow Jesus by renouncing, by renouncing things in their life. There was radical discipleship that was demonstrated by renouncing things. Okay, and this is where it comes to our life. What are the things in our life that we give ourselves to our time, our affection, our emotion, maybe their habits, and maybe their practices. But they, these are the things that draw us away from God. That just like the magician who's now been saved, we are faced with an opportunity to renounce those things or to allow those things to still live in our life. So what are the things in our life that that do not push us closer to the Lord, that do not encourage you to meet God, but rather actually take your mind and pull it away from meeting God. These are the things that those people renounced. And now all of a sudden that story becomes a lot more understandable in our context because they gave up the things that pushed them away from God. And I think for us that could look like a bunch of different things. Like, what are the things that we need to renounce? Here's where this gets a little tricky. It's because we can hear this message and say, yeah, that's right. Some of y'all do need to renounce some stuff. 
and think about it for the other people in the room. Like, I've seen what you've been doing. I, seen, I hear what you're listening to, the movies you watch. Like, y'all need to renounce some things. But what is God showing you that you need to give up? I mean, as I was preparing, I wrote down three things. Like, what are the things that I need to give up that are not drawing me to the Lord? But things that are, are, like, if God's moving me this way, these are the things that are moving you this way. What are those things that are going contrary to the work of God in your life? Is it a pursuit of something, a pursuit of someone, a love of something? Is it just a habit? What are those things that we need to renounce? Uh, You know, when I read this story, magic is often done in secret. It's a very secretive kind of thing. You know, you hear about it happening behind closed doors. And what they did when they brought their books together, it became open to the public. I think think sin is comfortable living in darkness. And the sin in our life is comfortable living in darkness. But if you want to be healed from that sin, you've already been forgiven. But if you want to be healed from that sin, you got to bring it to the light. What does James say? He says, confess your sins to one another so that you might be healed. Okay, you've got a way of doing things that you know is pulling away from what God is doing, and you bring it to the light. I've experienced that. Is that easy? No, 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 no. Is that good? Oh, yes. You feel like your heart's going to explode when you're talking to someone. I did. (laughs) But there's goodness there because you're understanding, like, man, It's not just that I claim Jesus, it's that I know Jesus. I have relationship with Jesus. And I don't want these things that that hold me back in my relationship, that keep my desires contrary to his desires. I don't want those things anymore. And so how, what are you gonna do with it? Well, I gotta put, I gotta shine the light on them. They cannot stay secret. They cannot stay hidden. And that's what these guys did. Sin loves to live in the dark. But if we're going to purge things out of our life, I think the gospel invites us to take these things into the light and to be healed. We want to renounce the things that are drawing us away from the Lord. So if you want to see a movement of God, devote yourself to the teaching of God. Look for God to move around you. In Ephesus, it was crazy stuff. You might see some crazy stuff. Look for where are you seeing transformation? Where are you seeing people change? So be devoted to the word. Look for transformation and renounce the things that are drawing you away from the Lord. All of us can do that. Be devoted to the word. Look for transformation and renounce the things that you need to renounce. So maybe today, just be really practical, maybe God has already highlighted something in your mind of something you might want to renounce. God is not looking to combat you with anger and frustration. He's rather given you an encouraging, uplifting opportunity to change. It's kind of like when you fall and someone extends their hand to help pick you up. That's what God's doing right now. He's offering this opportunity. Hey, I got you. 
There, there's, there's change that can happen. We, we view God as the, when we fall and when we mess up, as the God who says, yeah, you should have fallen. That's right. God's the one who gets down with us and picks us up. So if you're looking at something and you say, I need to renounce this, and you're feeling guilt and shame inside of you, that's not from the Lord. But opportunity for forgiveness and healing is for the Lord. So maybe in worship today, maybe while you're singing, you're praying and you're renouncing. Maybe there's a moment of invitation and you go to the altar and you give something to the Lord. Maybe it's just you sit down in your chair because you got to meet with God because there's something you need to renounce. Whatever that hits the road with you, I hope that you understand that there's a way that God is moving your life. And do not go against the grain. Do not let the things in darkness stay in darkness, but be healed. Let's pray. God, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for your word. God, I pray that we are like the um, former magicians who had given their life to you and, and after doing that realized there were things in their life they had to give up. And they didn't want other people to be drowned, dragged down by them but wanted to give all they had to you. So God, I just pray for our hearts to have courage to renounce the things that we ought to renounce. Thank you for your love too. Your love that meets us where we're at. In your name we pray. Amen.